Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Got the Beat's first mini album, Stamp on It. Got the Beat, the K pop super group from SM Entertainment. I was really into this and really wanted to talk about this just because I think the whole concept of a super group in music is just really cool and really fun. And it's ultimately very uncommon. So the fact that you get something, uh, really in any genre, I think is worth paying attention to. And it makes sense that we get. Uh, got the beat from SM because, of course, they did this with their male artists the past few years with Super M. So now we have them doing this once again with a bunch of heavy hitters from their their female lineup, notably Boa, Taeyeon, and Hyoyeon from Girl Generation, Solgi and Wendy from Red Velvet, and Karina and Winter from Espa. I think it's a really cool lineup just for the concept of like a super group for music too, because it very clearly spans across K-pop generations and to have like a true OG, true veteran in BOA to like lead this group, I think is also very inspired and very cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they had their first single step back about a year ago, January, 2022. And now we get this first mini album, this first EP, six more songs and, I thought it was pretty solid, pretty consistent. Uh, definitely a focus on dance breaks and performance with this music. There's lots of breakdowns. And if you watch the two music videos they put out this far, you can tell that that visual component is a big aspect of the music. I think overall, the vibe of the music itself sonically actually reminds me a lot of what Espa's going up to. Espa, of course, the most recent of all these acts uh, comprising this group, but there's just a lot of, you know, heavy electronic breakdowns and, and trap beats and stuff on uh, this, e this EP stamp on it. And I think that's kind of interesting to see kind of a, a foray. Most of these songs really feel like an Espa vibe and honestly like Karina vocally, definitely is showcased or at least has big moments on a lot of these tracks which i think is is, is pretty noticeable uh so stamp on it which got the music videos like the lead single their second single uh that definitely has a really fun breakdown on the chorus uh and then, i mean they literally have like a background vocal say and now the breakdown before the, the vocal breakdown begins but uh i think karina has some really great sounding high notes again just clearly showcased on that one um also, I think uh, Alter Ego, like perhaps the best of like the hardcore, like electronic sounding songs, the bass on that song is very interesting. Um, and then again, just kind of a catchy hook. And I thought the last track as well, Mala, uh, that was definitely interesting because it was the one perhaps exception to like what the Sonics were to this point on the EP. That one has a pretty noticeable flute uh, on the beat, but also just is a bit more of a stripped down, not quite as aggressive uh electronic beat i guess like a lighter pop beat generally so that at least shows some versatility obviously all these artists are very established i mean even the espa uh karina and winter even them you know they have a few eps to their name already everyone else is incredibly established and can really do much of anything but i think it is interesting that got the beat so far has been like really dance and like performance focused music because i think with this much talent you could probably set the bar or set the goals a bit higher than that and and try and make i think really like intriguing interesting music i don't know if like sonically this is like the most wowing music ever i think it's more about like the star power of all of these women together making music together is probably what's actually the coolest thing about it but i still think they could actually make stuff even more interesting and it'll be interesting to see if sm 
pushes Scott the Beat forward in the next year or so because just judging off what they did with Super M on the male side, they did go to a full-length album uh, pretty quickly, like a year later. So I wonder if we'll get a Got the Beat uh, full-length sooner than later. Also notably that Got the Beat is technically called a subunit of a group called Girls on Top. We've gotten no other releases from anything with Girls on Top beyond the Got the Beat stuff. We don't know of any other members besides the Got the Beat members, so that's kind of a weird distinction. Seems like SM is almost just uh, giving themselves the option to mix and match things moving forward. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I think just, again, like super groups in music, very interesting. You see them sometimes in hip-hop, but they don't last that long, and Boy Genius and on the indie rock side of things comes to mind. But I think K-pop really has an interesting way of going about this due to the artist's really strong connection and uh, relationship with the label. And be interesting if like JYP Entertainment, for example, was to do this. I think they definitely could easily make a super group with their female artists. That, that seems pretty obvious. But yeah, let me know. What did you think of Got The Beat's first mini-album stamp on it? Did you like it? Do you want more from this uh, super group? Leave a comment below. And for more K-pop, more music, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. Dave here with a review of Shin Ultraman, the Japanese superhero kaiju film that I didn't really have any expectations for going in, but I thought was a lot of fun and pretty cool and unique. So the reason I wanted to check out Shin Ultraman is because it's directed by the same co-director of Shin Godzilla from 2016, which was a critically acclaimed uh, film and you know i think uh the most heralded godzilla film in recent memory of course there are many shinji higuchi co-directed shin godzilla with hideki ano and higuchi directed shin ultraman and ano wrote co-produced and co-edited it so it's basically the same creative team doing another you know reboot of you know a big uh japanese film franchise and like Shin Godzilla, this is in the uh, tokusatsu style, which is, you know, the Japanese term for live action with heavy use of practical effects. So that's kind of why I was quite interested in Shin Ultraman is I think from a filmmaking perspective, it's just a bit more interesting than a lot of the other stuff that you get over from Toho when it comes to these, you know, famous properties that we keep getting lots of stuff from. And Ultraman, you know, I don't think it near as nearly as much of an impact in the West as Godzilla does. I think that's obvious and didn't really know what to expect going in. You know, I thought it was like, oh, kaiju, you know, big monster movie, cool. I was actually surprised with how little kaiju stuff there is in Chin Ultraman. It very quickly becomes more of like a sci-fi extraterrestrial type story the kaiju stuff is really more like the first 30 minutes the first act it's not as familiar as the godzilla stuff is anyway but that's not to say that there's not still a lot to like about ultraman shin ultraman i think really just the the effects and of course there's plenty of special effects it's not all practical but the effects i think mixed with this practical effects you know the use of miniatures and stuff and it makes the effects seem timeless like the kind of the mix of how this production worked and I, I just found it all like quite charming to watch and you know you had this music you know very uh anime uh reminiscent with these like horns and noticeable drum lines kind of gave me cowboy bebop vibes uh right away um and the dialogue and the plot is probably where i think people would probably have their most uh, bones to pick it's definitely hokey it's definitely cheesy 
but there's kind of an endearing nature to Shin Ultraman and the dialogue and you know of these characters. Uh, this movie, you know, kind of came and went very quickly in the U.S. It had a two-night Fathom Events uh, release in January, one night uh, subtitle, one night English language dub, and that was it. You know, this came out months and months ago overseas, so at least it got some kind of release in the U.S. I unfortunately had to see the dub due to uh, subtitling, so I didn't really get the full you know actor's experience. But it was cool to see my guy Hido- Hideo Toshi uh, Nishijima from Drive My Car, the star of Drive My Car. He's just part of the cast of Shin Ultraman, and this was a film back in 2019. This was filmed a while ago. But uh, Nishijima, he is like the head of you know this, our group of main characters, which is this like special uh, government force that's tasked with tracking down these kaiju creatures that keep appearing out of nowhere and terrorizing japan and the next thing we know ultraman shows up out of nowhere this 40 foot tall humanoid and he's fighting the kaiju seemingly a good guy and our characters have to figure out what's up with ultraman can we stop these kaiju and things like i said with things with the plot really get off the rails and go in directions i did not expect but i think the movie is like just committed enough and the production is like charming enough that you can kind of just get on this ride and you certainly need to get on this ride like it it is definitely a out there type story but i think it's a lot of fun i think it's quite charming and i actually quite enjoyed some of like the the dialogue uh one off one liners you got from a lot of the human characters uh kind of like knocking uh japanese bureaucracy and government uh japan's uh status as almost like a vassal state to the united states i thought that was quite amusing was getting a bunch of laughs in my theater and yeah i mean if you like a monster movie the first 30 minutes i thought was really good the kaiju designs were super cool the fights with ultraman were great and then it gets into the sci-fi stuff but still i think being with ultraman and the mystery of ultraman's identity his purpose his motives all that stuff is quite fun so i would say seek out Jin ultraman if you can I think most people in the U.S. will have to wait for VOD, but that's probably coming pretty soon. There's also a ton of clips already on YouTube because this came out overseas a while ago, so you can you can see it see it in in various forms at this point. And I'll be definitely be looking uh, later this year. We're getting from the same creative team. We're getting Shin Kamen Rider, the third you know uh, Toku Zatsu like reboot uh, from the same group. So that'll be interesting, and I'm curious if that'll maybe get a bigger release here in the u.s we'll see but uh yeah let me know what you think of shin ultraman were you able to catch it did you know anything about ultraman before going in i certainly did not and uh yeah for more movies subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of nicholas wending reffin's noir thriller series for netflix copenhagen cowboy this is a non-spoiler review just my general impression of the series and yeah i think obviously when uh, NWR releases anything, it'll get attention. He's, you know, made his name for a long time now as a singular filmmaker, unique filmmaker. Maybe not the most complete filmmaker, but definitely someone who brings a lot of flair on the filmmaking side of things and a lot of, you know, passion into what he makes. And of course, this would be his second TV series in a row. He had Too Old to Die Young for Amazon back in 2019. And now this is, uh, for ne- this is for Netflix, and you know it's been a while since he made a movie. Neon Demon was 2016, so 
I have a feeling we might be going back to movies after this, just because I'm not really sure in the industry climate we're in if he's going to get another big budget to make another series after he made two very indulgent, uh, self-involved TV series in a row. And that's the thing with Copenhagen Cowboy. It's kind of more of Too Old to Die Young. It's a lot more of Refn doing Refn things. And if you're a fan of his, that'll probably be fun and cool. But I know for certain this will not, you know, make new fans of his. People who weren't already fans didn't like his his excessive touches at times with his storytelling. That's not going to change with Copenhagen Cowboy. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, I'll be honest, I think by the end it really kind of lost me as this show really gets off the rails and got much more metaphysical and science fiction than I ever expected. I think the, the beginning is really promising where, you know, we're set in modern times in Copenhagen meeting with our main character, uh, Mew, who we learn is a kind of undocumented immigrant who's almost been like passed around as a good luck charm trafficked in that way. And she meets other people in a similar circumstance as she's kind of imprisoned in this, you know, criminal organization as some other women are as well. And like the whole like living on the fringes as an undocumented person in like central Europe is I think really interesting and the show wasn't really pulling any punches with that and, you know, kind of setting up the noir side of things with that, with, with, with the series from the beginning was, was quite compelling. And, you know, quickly this becomes a story of Mew seeking revenge and that's all good too. You know, again, familiar with a lot of his other work. This is notably his first Danish work since Pusher 3 back in 05. So it's been a while for Refn to return to the homeland, I guess, but the tonal shifts and the genre shifts as the series just got bigger and more expansive and dreamier and all those things really just started to lose me because I was much more compelled in the simple start of the series and the simple premise. And not that there's things not to like about the journey you do go on. Like the filmmaking is really good. He has a really interesting camera and the way he cuts and it's a very expansive, like uh, open way he frames uh, the environments and stuff it always i think catches the eye and it's done well but yeah i think plot wise i just ultimately got lost with copenhagen cowboy so i think if you're a refin fan maybe check out the beginning and see if you're intrigued but just know that it's not gonna go where you think it's gonna go and i guess that's in line with his brand at this point i'll obviously be curious and checking out whatever he puts out next but yeah i think this is this one's really just for the nwr heads but uh, let me know what you thought. Leave a comment below. And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of HBO's The Last of Us. The new drama series, survival series from Craig Mazin. Adaptation of the blockbuster PlayStation video game franchise. Starring Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. Man, there was a lot of hype for the series. A lot riding on this series. And after one episode... I think the hype has been met. Fantastic premiere, and I'm just very excited to watch this series. You know, I think I had a lot of faith in The Last of Us on HBO, just really due to the pedigree of, of the creators. Craig Mazin, of course, coming off Chernobyl, Emmy Darling, a show we reviewed on this channel. Amazing series. To have him immediately take what he did with Chernobyl and just go right back into something in a similar subject matter, at least a little bit, with The Last of Us, and do that for HBO once again. There's just too much talent 
behind the scenes with this series doesn't feel like most video game adaptations. And I know there's been a handful of well-received animated uh, gaming adaptations lately. To get something executed on so well in live action, I think, is really impressive and why this kind of rises above anything else in recent memory. Um, and that, that's just that's just really exciting. You know, you have Neil Druckmann, creator of the game, the head of Naughty Dog, directly involved in the writing and production of this series with Craig Mazin. So to have that direct creator involvement, I think, is really impressive. And I think this does at least bode at least a bit well for the other like PlayStation Studios series that are in development, such as the God of War series. So probably more to come in the future. But yeah, I think you know, The Last of Us, you don't have to be a fan of the games. I've only played the first game. I haven't played the second game. You only have you don't have to be a fan of the games or really know anything about the games at all, I think, to to like this series, what it has, just because again, the pedigree of it being at HBO and HBO drama series, uh, is all quite familiar. You know, it's a survival thriller with zombies but grounded in, you know, real emotional stakes and, like, real character moments. And, you know, when you have that strong writing and you have, I think, that appreciation for the stuff beyond the genre troping of the zombies and whatnot, it will feel better and stronger and different than other stuff of a familiar ilk. You know, Pedro Pascal playing Joel, his task to uh, protect young Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey of uh, Game of Thrones fame, that situation, that, that trope is quite familiar, right? We see on The Mandalorian, we've seen a lot of this plot in Children of Men. Uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub stuff is all quite well-trod ground. But I think this series, you know, kind of being, I think, grounded in how the people are affected first is why I think The Last of Us has a chance to really rise above this genre. You know, I think zombies largely has felt played out in the in the, you know, genre space, movies and TV for quite some time. Right? The heyday of The Walking Dead was a long time ago. Um, even like zombies in video games is not exactly in vogue these days. And what's cool about The Last of Us is that again, it's not just about like the zombies, the the clickers. It's, it's not like what our thing is. It it's about the actual characters. And I think that's really bodes well for, again, this feeling different, this feeling like above other stuff of a similar subject matter. You know, I think Bella Ramsey, who I really haven't seen much of apart from, you know, her memorable role as Liana Mormont in Game of Thrones, definitely brings a lot of fire as Ellie in that first episode. And I think uh, she could be strong casting for sure. Uh, definitely a rising actor despite her age. And then, of course, Pedro Pascal. We know we're going to get with him. He's been one of our great actors for some time. And he actually knows this very well, obviously playing Din Djarin on The Mandalorian. So a lot of this should feel like second nature to him. You know, I think uh, I'll be curious to see exactly how the production feels as we move beyond the uh, the the safety, you know, into the, these quarantine zones and whatnot as the story progresses. Because the, the, the base that we spent a lot of time in in the premiere in Boston definitely has a backlot feel, but I think it still looked really well and the production felt felt big. And I'll be curious what the uh, expansive sets are assuming will be changing a lot as the, our characters are traveling around. I'll be curious to see how that, that fares. Um, I think another part of why The Last of Us premiere really lands is it has just an incredibly effective first 30 minutes, emotionally devastating first 30 minutes, uh, you know, 20 years in, in the past, uh, if you will, for the show. And that 
I think being able to execute on something so emotional that well, again, shows you that there's more going on with this series than just the genre stuff. And that's really appealing to me. That I think it really makes you invested in Joel, invested in Joel's pain, and what it must be like to be him 20 years later, now entrusted in the care of a young girl once again. What will he do? You know, if, whether you've played the games or not, I think this is, again, something that you can appreciate and latch on to and be invested in. And that, that's what I'm just most excited about with this series. And, you know, I, I don't really care about whether it's faithful to the, the game, quote unquote. I think the most important thing about this is to make a good television show. And I have the utmost faith in HBO and Craig Mazin to do that, especially with Druckmann, you know, uh, pitching in and helping out. So I really see no reason to not be excited. <clears throat> it's cool that this is, you know, kicking off in mid-January as like the first big blockbuster series of 2023 by HBO not wasting any time. That's awesome. And yeah, I feel like it, it's going to quickly become appointment viewing and be pretty thrilling and honestly has a chance to, I think, be a gigantic series for HBO, especially in the first half of this year. So let me know. What do you think of The Last of Us? Have you played the games? Are you coming into this fresh? What do you think? What are you most looking forward to about the series? Let me know. And for more TV, more HBO, uh, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with my 2023 Oscar nomination predictions. The Oscar noms are being announced on January 24th, so gotta think about What's going to make it? The Golden Globes happened, and we got the nominations for the Director's Guild, Screen Actors Guild, and the Producers Guild. We have a good frame of reference on who's in the mix, what movies are on the outs, who is 50-50, and I'm going to go into all of that. Best Director, Best Picture, all four acting categories, as well as some other stuff like Animated Feature, International Feature Film. So let's just get right into it. Let's just go right into Best Picture where I think there is a solid group of five that I would say are definitely getting Best Picture nominated. And that would be Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, The Banshees of Inishirin, Top Gun Maverick, and Tar. Uh, Everything Everywhere, Fablemans, and Banshees got nominated like across the board, at every guild plus the Globes. And then Top Gun only missed for the SAG Ensemble, and Tar only missed for the SAG Ensemble. So that's a really strong showing. Really no reason to expect any of those films not to get in there, considering we consider Fablemans, Banshees, and Everything Everywhere to be the top three contenders for Best Picture at this time. So I think right off the bat, that's five. Now we know this year, for the first time, it's a solid 10 nominations for Best Picture. It's fixed 10, so 10 films will definitely get in not like 8 to 10, and we usually only get 8 or 9. It's definitely 10 this time, so that's good. Uh, so who else is in the mix, right? And I think there's a few contenders, a few movies perhaps rising up, a few that are still kind of in there in like the middle, probably safe, and then a few that are maybe fading away. So I think Elvis is probably in, in our, you know, our 6 to 10 range. Uh, Elvis had a Globe nom and a Producers Guild nom. I think the producers guild not makes it pretty safe. You know, whenever any of these best picture films also have other awards down the ballot that they are in the mix for, obviously Austin, Austin Butler for best actor, chief among them, the, it helps the movie's cause rise up. So I think we'll get we'll Elvis in there for six movies so far. Then after that, you know, I got to think Avatar The Way of the Water will get in. You know, that would be two big blockbuster movies 
in Best Picture alongside Top Gun, the two biggest uh, movies of the year. But there's so much craft love for the filmmaking behind Avatar The Way of Water. I mean, it's a lock to win Best Visual Effects. We know that already, as well as other things. So the Producers Guild nom for Avatar, I think, bodes really well for Avatar getting in there to Best Picture. Whether James Cameron can get into Best Director, I think that's a lot less certain. But I think Avatar itself is pretty safe. So that gives us seven. Now, now it gets, I think, really tricky. And this is where, like, it's really hard to be confident about anything else after this. So these last three, I think, are really in flux. Right now, I would say Babylon feels like it's in there. You know, Babylon didn't get as much love as people expected it would, you know, a year ago. But still, all the, you know, uh, shortlist for down ballot awards, a lot of Babylon love there. Probably going to win Best Original Score, Globe nomination, SAG Ensemble nomination. I feel like it's going to sneak in there, but not confident in saying that for sure. Then after that, I mean, it, I feel like it gets even harder because at least Babylon has a lot of other pedigree during in other categories that'll probably boost it up. You, can, you can't really say that about the rest of these movies. Glass Onion had a Producers Guild nom. Triangle of Sadness had a Globe nom. The Whale surprisingly, has a Producers Guild nom. Wakanda Forever, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever has Producers Guild nom. And Women Talking had a SAG Ensemble nom. You know, I think a few months ago, Women Talking probably was pegged to be in here. I'm not very confident in that because I don't expect the film to get any acting nominations in the end either. So that's probably out. Triangle of Sadness, though, hasn't done as well as I expected it to at some of the other shows. But for now, I'm still keeping it in. And then for 10, I have a hard time seeing like Wakanda Forever getting in there in a year when Top Gun and Avatar are certainly or almost certainly getting in three like pure blockbusters. Not sure about that. But not that far off would be Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, which a lot, a lot of people have seen has Netflix behind it, has the producers killed Nam. The first Knives Out almost nearly got in Best Picture, you know, in early 2020. So I'll go Glass Onion at number 10 right now, but the Producers Guild nom for The Whale raises my eyebrow because that's the movie that has not been super well-liked, just a movie with great acting performances people have liked, but The Whale snuck in there. That would, that would be interesting. But for now, I'll have the, the back end being Babylon, Triangle of Sadness, and Glass Onion. But I think that that, one, that, that group is very in flux. You know, Could RRR sneak in there? Uh, there's certainly a groundswell for RR. I'm not sure how big that is. You know, that's a film that'll almost certainly win Best Original Score for Not Do Not To. But gosh, I'm not sure if it can get into Best Picture, but I'd be rooting for it for sure. That would be amazing. Um, but I'm not going to predict it right now. Uh, okay, so real quick, let's get into uh, animated feature. So I think this is really simple, honestly. There's four almost certainly locks in this category. It's really just the fifth spot that's up for grabs. So let's just go with all four of these movies were nominated for at the Producers Guild Award and were at the Globes as well. So that'd be Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio from Netflix that won the Globe, as well as Marcellus Shell with Shoes On, Puss in Boots 2, Turning Red from Pixar. That's your four. Lock them in. Just the fifth spot. You know, is it Minions? Is it Eno O? Is it Wendell and Wild on Netflix? Is it Apollo 10 and a half from Richard Ringlater? I personally would root for Netflix, The Sea Beast, but 
it's hard to say. You know, I'm doing this before the uh, animation uh, Guild Award nominations, the, the Annie Award nominations come out. That would give a little bit more context on this one. I'd be rooting for the Sea Beast, but I don't know. Something about this screams like Wendell and Wild. There's the pedigree behind that, Netflix pushing it. It seems like Netflix is pushing that more than Wendell and Wild, or what the, Netflix is pushing Wendell and Wild more than the Sea Beast, surprisingly, but. Hard to say on that fifth spot, but I'm really confident in those first four. All right, so then moving down, let's go to the directors, by uh, the best director nominations. Uh, we had the Globes and the Directors Guild Award noms to help guide us here. So I think pretty confident in four people getting in for sure. That would be Todd Field for Tar, the Daniels for Everything Everywhere, Martin McDonough for Banshees, Steven Spielberg for Fablements. Really confident in those four. Uh, all four of them got a director's guild nomination. Uh, Todd Field missed the Globes. The rest of them got in. Spielberg won the Globes. Really confident in those. Now, director's guild also rewarded Joseph Kaczynski for Top Gun, which is a very just nom, the logistical challenge of making that movie literally flying jets and filming them. Uh, really cool, really well earned. I don't think he's going to get in. Baz Luhrmann got in for the Globes in the you know, in, in Kaczynski's spot, you could say. I feel like Baz Luhrmann has a better chance. But I don't know. That's not necessarily what I'm rooting for. Um, you know, the past several years in a row, the DGA got four out of five uh, in sync with the Oscars. There's always one that was different. And if you remember the most recently, it has been an international director getting in to best director, whether that was Powell Palakowski for Cold War or Thomas Vinterberg for another round, or uh, Ryuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car last year. Of course, Bong Joon-ho winning for Parasite. The director's branch is much more international now, and the Academy in general is much more international now than it was five years ago and ten years ago. So I have a hard time not expecting this trend to continue, given that there's several great candidates to maintain this trend. And those would be Park Chan-wook, from South Korea with Decision to Leave, of course. Ruben Ostland for Triangle of Sadness. Uh, SS Rajmouli for RRR, as well as uh, Edward Berger for All Quiet on the Western Front. It's hard to say which one actually would get through. Like, I feel like it's a little too early to really have a feel on who among that group would actually get through. All Quiet on the Western Front did have a lot of shortlist nominations for other categories beyond international feature film, which was a bit of a surprise. Maybe that could be a sign. Not sure. I have, you know, I have Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness in Best Picture. That's kind of my gut pick. But Park Chan-wook is probably the most celebrated of that group, I would say. Actually, definitely the most celebrated of that group. But then something about RRR, right? If, if Raj and Willie could somehow get in. I'm not too sure. Right now, I'll, I'll go with Ruben Oslin. But... You know, I think James Cameron is certainly still in the mix for this category. Um, you know, the, the the voting, of course, has only just begun, and the Avatar wave is very current and was not really even beginning when let the Globe voting happen, for example. So the Cameron case is certainly rising. And then, of course, there's other people that could surprise, right? Like maybe Charlotte Wells for After Sun, if, if After Sun continues to have a, a slow build. Not too sure yet. But I'm really confident in the Daniels, Martin McDonough, Spielberg, and Field being the first four in. Uh, and let's go to international feature film real quick before we go to acting. So this one's pretty 
I think pretty interesting as well. Pretty strong year for this group. You, look, you, you can look at the shortlist now, but I think all quiet on the Western Front from Germany, Argentina 1985 from Argentina, close from Belgium, and decision to leave from South Korea. I think those four are very safe. Argentina 1985, surprisingly, perhaps winning the globe in this category. That leaves the fifth spot, whether it's the donkey film EO from Poland, which has a lot of fans online, St. Omer from France, Bardo for Mexico, for Netflix, you know, I think people would have pegged Bardo in this, you know, a few months ago, but the Bardo reception was so mixed that I don't know how hard Netflix is going to go for Bardo now. Wouldn't it really shock me if Bardo still got in as kind of an admiration for Ina Ritu. He is very popular in the Academy, of course, as a two-time Best Director winner. Notably, RRR was not on the shortlist, so it actually can't be in this category, unfortunately. I'm going to go with EO, the donkey film from Poland, which seems to just be very popular <laughs> online uh, and have like a really positive uh, you know, vibe from people who have watched it. But again, kind of hard to have a good feel on what that fifth spot is. But again, like director, I'm really confident in that first four. So that leads us to the four acting categories. And I think they're all interesting in their own right. Uh, let's go with Best Actress, which I think is the one that has the clearest like top-heaviness to its category, and that would be Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh for Tar and Everything Everywhere, respectively. Both won at the Golden Globe, where they separate between comedy and drama, of course, both nom- nominated for the SAG. So that leaves, and we expect one of them to win without question. I don't think anyone else has a chance to win Best Actress, so they're surely being nominated at least three more spots. And I think it got a little more interesting than it was a few weeks ago due to what we've, what's now happened. I think Viola Davis is pretty safe for The Woman King. Obviously, she's nominated all the time as one before. Uh, great performance once again. Globe and SAG noms. Let's put Viola Davis in there. Two more spots. Now, I think what's interesting is Anda Armas got both a Globe and SAG nom for Blonde, a movie that was uh, a big disappointment to many. Now, she was great, the, the best part of the film and... Maybe there's more of a blonde hive rising in the Academy than seems evident to people on the outside, but I don't know. Maybe Aunt Armis has a chance here, which would be, I think, great for her. I, I'd be rooting for her just because uh, she's had a great career to this point. It'd be cool, even if I really disliked blonde. So that's something I wasn't expecting to say a few weeks ago. Daniel Deadweiler for Till got a sag nom. So I feel like we should go with that top five but then again michelle williams was pegged for this category not too long ago but of course she kind of perhaps controversially start wanting to run in best actress and not supporting actress even though it's more of a supporting performance in the fablemans michelle williams might not get in even if fablemans is a top tier best picture contender that would be something you know i think we can write off margot robbie in babylon i think we can write off ani taylor joy in the menu i think we can Right off Olivia Coleman for Empire of Light as well, given that Empire of Light just did not work this award season. So I think after the top three, it's Anna Armas, Daniel Deadweiler, and Michelle Williams for two spots. And right now, I think I'm going to lean Anna and Deadweiler in, Michelle Williams out. But we'll see what happens, you know, two months to go till the actual Oscars happen. So a lot can change. Uh, best actor, though. Uh, I think has a really tight top four and it's more about that one fifth spot that seems to be moving around. Brendan Fraser, Colin Farrell, Austin Butler, 
definitely in. Those are the three that I think are in the mix to win. And then Bill Nye for living also seems very safely in. All all of them got a SAG nom. Farrell and Butler won in the Globes. Frazier did not get a Globe nom, but of course there's a lot of controversy and backstory with Frazier in the Globes. So that's a, a bit of a messy situation there. Uh, so that that's our top four. Uh, that leaves spot five, which, you know, not too long ago, people would have perhaps given the Tom Cruise for Top Gun Maverick, given that we are still putting Top Gun Maverick in the best picture mix there for sure. But no Globe nom, no SAG nom for Cruise. Maybe the Cruise individual stuff is just a step too far for some people, given the, you know, uh, detail that there is with Cruise's career and Cruise's relationship with the industry. Hard to say. Diego Calva got a Globe nom for Babylon, not a SAG nom. Adam Sandler, surprisingly, got a SAG nom for Hustle. And then there seems to be a rising after Sun wave behind Paul Mescal, even though he didn't get a Globe or a SAG nom. So I really don't know who is this fifth pick right now. I think it's really hard to say. And gosh, I mean, I'd love my guy Paul Mescal to get in. He is great in After Sun. He's the best part of After Sun to me. But Man, I, I mean, Daniel Craig and Glass Onion, I don't think that's going to happen. Triangle of Sadness doesn't have a true lead to pick, you know. Apologies to Harris Dickinson. I'm not really sure who else can get picked here. Paul Dano is running for supporting actor in Fablemans, even though Michelle Williams ran for best actress, so that's not a choice here. There's no best actor pick in everything everywhere. So, I don't know. This one, this one's hard to say. I'll just go with Mescal as like a default pick. It feels like there's after some wave happening, and I guess it's more of a pick against Cruz and more of like a lack of faith that enough people would actually pick Cruz. Even though if I think most people are kind of high on Cruz these days after what happened with Top Gun Maverick and how successful it was, so. I don't know. I think that the fifth spot in best actor is, is really hard to say. Leave a comment. Let me know. What do you think? Who, who's the fifth pick there? I'm not really sure. And then we have our supporting category. So supporting actress, uh, I think, has shaken out a little bit more recently. So Angela Bassett won for the Globe, got nominated SAG. I think is considered quite clearly the favorite now for this category, which I think is really cool. And something not something I thought about really at all when I saw Wakanda Forever, but it really seems to have shaken out that way as kind of like a coronation and celebration of Angela Bassett's whole career. Pretty cool. Uh, that also leaves Hong Chao, who did not get a Globe nomination, but did get a SAG nomination for The Whale. Carrie Condon, who got nominations for both for Banshees. I think those three are definitely in with Bassett as the favorite. The next two spots, both of them for SAG went to Everything Everywhere for Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Sue. Uh, Globes, though, just, uh, didn't pick either of them and picked Dolly DeLeon from Triangle of Sadness and Carrie Mulligan from She Said. I think that four is probably where we're going to get these last two spots for supporting actress from. It doesn't feel like the women talking movement is good, momentum is going to happen regarding like Jesse Buckley or Claire Foy and supporting actress. I just think that. Women Talking as an ensemble film perhaps is going to cannibalize a lot of votes. And if Women Talking in the film isn't actually going to get through into Best Picture, maybe it actually just gets very under-nominated, despite what people would have thought a few months ago. So that's where I'm feeling right now at that. I think we can take Carrie Mulligan out, given that she said also had a very soft award season. And I think it's a question of 
is the international voting aspect of the Academy enough to push Dolly De Leon through? She is truly amazing in Act 3 of Triangle of Sadness. That would be super cool. Um, and I would endorse spreading the love a little bit across the movies. We don't necessarily need four acting nominations for everything everywhere. Just three would be fine. Um, and if you have to eliminate one from everything everywhere, it's probably Stephanie Sue because she's so new and Jamie Lee Curtis has so much faith and uh, goodwill behind her in her whole career. So you know, kind of like Angela Bassett, Curtis getting this nomination is about more than just this one role. Uh, and Stephanie Sue has a long career in front of her still. So that's what I'd go with right now. Curtis in, De Leon in, Sue out, Mulligan out. And then Bassett, Chow, and Condon definitely in. But that, that, that that's an interesting one. I think that that bottom two is going to be in flux probably the whole year, the whole rest of the award season. And that leaves us with supporting actor where Kiki Kwan is by far and away the favorite to win this, won the Globe, got a SAG nom, he's in. His chief competition who got noms in both would be Brendan Gleeson for Banshees. And now it seems like Barry Keown from Banshees is also pretty safely in after a Globe and SAG win, a SAG, SAG nom. And I mean, I love Barry. He's been great for so long. He's been rising for so long. Amazing look for him, very justly earned. That's that's super cool. Brad Pitt got a Globe nom, not a SAG nom. Paul Dano got a SAG nom, not a Globe nom. And then out of fucking nowhere, Eddie Redmayne got both a Globe and SAG nom. And the SAG nom in particular is very surprising to me. Is Eddie Redmayne for The Good Nurse, a movie that's incredibly mediocre, is that going to be the film? That, or is that going to be a film that gets an acting nomination for Eddie Redmayne? Is Eddie Redmayne, Eddie Redmayne really that popular? Obviously, he's an Oscar winner. He's been nominated other times. Is that really what's going to happen? Is Netflix going to push the Eddie Redmayne good nurse thing? I, I'm not going to pick it. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. I don't. I actually didn't even like his performance that much. Yeah, he's probably the best part of the movie once he starts getting weird. But I don't think that's enough. Uh, so I'm not picking that. I'm going to pick Dano as our fourth. Quan Gleason, Keon, Dano. Now at least pick five. And there's a lot of a lot of buzz, a lot of thought, and this has been the case since the movie came out, that Judd Hirsch from The Fablemans with his very showy, brief but memorable role as, uh, was it the grandfather character, one scene role in The Fablemans, Judd Hirsch could get in. If The Fablemans ends up being like best picture or you know, second place, runner-up, best picture. It's pretty easy to see Judd Hirsch getting through. On the other hand, though, Michelle Williams isn't getting in. Is best Judd Hirsch really going to get in instead? In a different category? Hard to say. But, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of have a feeling that Babylon isn't going to get, uh, you know, acting noms, whether that's Diego Calva, Margot Robbie, or Brad Pitt. Obviously, Brad Pitt's super popular. And his last time around, of course, he won for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you can't rule that out. But I don't know, man. Like, I think I'm just grasping at some kind of straw to keep Eddie Redmayne out of the mix. So let me know who do you think is in the supporting actor uh, field right now. And, you know, I'll be talking about the Oscar nominations when they happen. And, of course, once we get closer to the Oscars themselves, I'll be doing my full predictions once, of course, we know who did, in fact, get nominated. So you'll want more award season, want more movies, make sure you subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.